0: Welcome to Madeline Looks Back, a podcast dedicated to the female gaze. I'm Veronica.
1: And I'm Natalia.
0: And this week we're going to be talking about two different teenage films. Well, one is a film, Bring It On, and the other is a Netflix series called Never Have I Ever.
1: Yes, I'm so excited to talk about this topic. I was kind of inspired by an article in Bustle by Dana Getz called What Happened to Sleepover Movies. And she was kind of talking about this like magical era in the early 2000s when there were just a ton of movies being made like about and for teenage girls. And I just loved all of those movies so much. So I was like so happy to read that article. And it got me thinking a little bit about like what that genre looks like today she talks about like how when we got into like the 2010s there was a lot of like Hunger Games and like more dystopian stuff being made for teenagers and we kind of moved away from that genre of just like teenage girls being complex humans and not just um plot devices so yeah I'm excited to talk about this topic
0: <laughs> yeah it, and as you said early 2000s Bring It On was it came out in actually The Year 2000, which is now 20 years ago, which blows my mind. It was directed by Peyton Reed and written by Jessica Bendinger, I believe is how you pronounce her last name. And the director of photography is a man named Sean Moore, which will become important shortly.
1: Oh, interesting. I watched this movie a ton when I was a teenager. Like, it was one of those movies that was always on TV. And being a teenager in Venezuela, like, I just kind of looked at American teenage movies as just like this magical thing. I was like, oh my God, is that what high school is like in America? Um, So it it just like has a place in my heart.
0: Yeah, I actually, it's funny that you talk about how in like the 2010s we had a lot of Hunger Games because when I was a teenager, I only wanted to watch movies like the Hunger Games, but instead at sleepovers, I was being forced to watch movies like Bring (laughs) It On. So I didn't relate to them as much at the time, but I have actually, I don't know, I I like, with my own perception of myself, found it unacceptable to be into girly things at that age. Mm. But now that I'm like, I can like what I want, and you guys can just deal with it, I feel like I find a lot more enjoyment in movies like this.
1: Yeah, totally. And I feel like we weren't totally attuned to the fact as, I don't know, 14, 15-year-olds, that it's a little bit satirical, and that it's Mm -hmm. making fun of that obsession with your high school career or your high school life. And, you know, there's so many times when Torrance Kirsten Dunn's character says like cheerleading is my life that is so funny but it's like (laughs) that is how you feel when you're a teenager like the one the things that you care about are like the only thing that matter in the world.
0: Yeah I definitely remember being in high school and people saying like a few years from this a few years from now none of this will matter none of these people will matter you won't even talk to them anymore and even while I was able to realize that and what people were saying to me was true it's still really hard to separate yourself from that because you really just have school and then you come home and hang out with your parents like you don't have like a diverse free lifestyle where you can like go to work and then do an activity after work of your choosing and then maybe do a different activity and then eat what you want and kind of go to sleep when you want I mean, high school kind of is your world.
1: Yeah, and totally, like, an extracurricular, like, cheerleading would become your whole life.
0: To kind of go back to what you said about this being a bit of a satirical movie and my comment about the director of photography, I was looking up old movie reviews for this, and there was one by a reviewer at the Chicago Sun, I believe, who just hated this movie he was like oh it's so cheap it's just like girls in skimpy clothing and it's like so uninspired and he just didn't have a single good thing to say about bring it on but this review that I found in the New York Times by A.O. Scott I thought kind of hit it on the head and there's this one passage that I really liked if Mr. Reed's camera can't help Ogle Torrance and her teammates Miss Bendinger's script manages to respect their hard work and their aspirations it may be impossible to dispel the notion that cheerleading is a silly trivial enterprise a notion upon which much of the comedy in Bring It On depends. But this movie rarely feels cynical, condescending, or cheap. Since Bring It On is a movie about high school cheerleaders, you might expect whatever plot it has to be a flimsy scaffolding for the shameless exploitation of young women in short skirts, a slice of diet cheesecake, a coyote not quite so ugly. And you wouldn't be entirely wrong. Kirsten Dunst, who plays Torrance Shipman, the striving, energetic captain of a Southern California pom-pom squad, displays her belly button in nearly every frame of the picture, and when she's not wearing her cute red and black uniform, she's outfitted in pajamas, a bikini, or when modesty or the school dress code demands, a series of colorful sports bras. (laughs) That's Um, so true. (laughs) It's such a good opening paragraph, but yeah, the review really does get into how the film does deal with some bigger, deeper issues. Like, it's not completely just the stereotypical movie about teenage girls like prancing around and appealing to the male gaze by being in skimpy outfits all the time.
1: Yeah, I like um that first quote you read about it being about like ambition or something along those lines. And that's something that I'd written down in my notes too. Like it's so much actually about like integrity and, you know, like, the fact that Torrance cannot stand that, you know, they've been stealing their routines and, like, she wants to win on their own merits and, like, will not give up and just, like, puts in all this hard work to create something that's their own. And I think that that's definitely, like, a cool, interesting thing for a teenage girl to learn from watching a movie like this.
0: Yeah, and I mean, rewatching this movie, it definitely, like, there are some of those Hints of this friends esque handling of gay students, Mm -hmm. which isn't great, but it does also deal with some, like, it might not deal with them, these issues, like, as gracefully as a modern movie, but it does deal with the fact that this squad that they've been stealing their moves from for so many years is, like, a predominantly black squad in a less affluent part of town, which is definitely, like, a heavier topic for a movie like this to kind of wade into.
1: Yeah, and that they push back against this white savior idea I mean there's there's that moment when Torrance brings them the check and says you know I want you to be in the tournament because I want to compete against the best but it's important for the Clovers to get there on their own merits yeah that's such an
0: interesting moment as well because I think that that's something that people brush aside a lot the fact that Torrance was trying to help this team because She wanted it for the team, but she also wanted it for herself and for herself to feel good. But it's not their job to accept that check to make her feel good about herself.
1: Yeah, I think that she even says that to her. What's Gabrielle Union's character's name? I forgot it. Oh, gosh. Um, Isis. Yes. So she's the captain of the rival squad. And yeah, she basically says in so many words, like, that's just to make yourself feel better. And I think that that's a learning moment for Torrance as well. So yeah, even though, like, this superficially is a movie about girls in little skirts, like, I think that there's more there. I do want to go back to what you said about the casual homophobia, though, because that (laughs) did make me really uncomfortable watching it this time around, especially because it's a movie that I just, like, hold in such high regard, but I feel like it's so typical of that time that, like, even the one openly gay character, like, when he is telling someone that he's gay, what he says is, I'm controversial, mm. which is just so <laughs> uncomfortable. And yeah, like, the girls call each other dykes, like, as a way to be mean to each other and to disparage each other, which, you know, d- we definitely wouldn't see in something like this made today.
0: I wonder if, just in the progression of social movements, if that was that era fell somewhere between people being like afraid of gay people and then there was like this sort of dismissal of them as being harmless until we've like finally, hopefully, transitioned to more of a place of like acceptance and respect.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, like watching something today like Sex Education, which we talked about in a previous episode and like the way that they handle sexual identity and that is so much more nuanced but yeah I think that yeah we just didn't give that much thought to like words and how they can be harmful
0: yeah I don't know I remember that being a big joke when I was in junior high and high school too like to tease people you'd be like that's like you're gay or like that's so gay as like this demeaning kind of like trivial put down Um, yeah totally which like certainly toward the end of my high school career Like, that was something that was becoming less and less acceptable, and you would definitely get called out for saying something like that, but I don't know. It is really interesting to reflect back on that moment in history and remember that that was, like, a thing that actually
1: happened. Yeah, and we did the same thing as teenagers in Venezuela, like, when something was cheesy, it was gay. And even, like, the terms of address, like, for your friends, like, dude or whatever was marico, marica, which means fag, and that's, like, what you call your friends... Instead of their name. It was just, like, very... Yeah, it was really different the way that we thought about word usage at that time. It's crazy. But it has been 20 years, so... It has been 20 Um, years. Slightly along those lines, I also noticed, like, a ton of... Just the way that girls talk about each other, like when they're describing Red toward the beginning of the movie, they say, like, she puts the itch and bitch and the whore and horrifying. And just this, like, real casual way that girls used to talk about each other as, like, being sluts and being whores, that, again, is something that we're moving away from now. I wanted to, like, backtrack a little bit and give a little bit of background before we move on to today. Perfect. So there's this great New York Times article from 1996 written by Peggy Orenstein Orenstein, called The Movie Discovers the Teenage Girl. Hmm. And so I think, like, we can track, like, the beginnings of this genre to that time. And she's writing this probably, like, a year after Clueless came out, which is definitely, like, I think what heralded in this genre Being a movie that's, like, superficially about girls obsessed with clothes, but actually being a Shakespeare adaptation and being a movie that's, like, super smart and witty. So Peggy says... I'm not talking about the traditional use of young women as plot devices, like the virginal blank in Stealing Beauty, upon whom other characters project their fantasies, or as victims. I'm talking about films for children and adults alike in which girls are in charge of their own fates, active rather than reactive. Films that are about girls' relationships to one another rather than to boys, that tackle the big themes of teenage life like anger, sexuality, alienation, and displacement. And so she's basically just saying that that Movie executives just discovered that teenage girls are this like really profitable uh, demographic, and that making movies for them is going to make them money. Where in the past there was kind of this idea like girls will watch a movie with a boy as the lead, but the the reverse isn't true.
0: Interesting. So she's drive. So she's saying that it's driven more by economics than by like trying to cater to this demographic I mean like I know that the two were entwined but it's more of like an economic choice than like a feminism choice
1: I think it's an economic choice in terms of the movie industry and like the decision to produce these movies she I don't know if it was in this one or another article that I read where they also talk about how it's just like A lot cheaper to make a movie about girls in high school than it is to make an action movie. Mm. So they can make a lot more money from it. And they, oh man, now I, I wish I remembered if it was this article or another one. They also talk about how they can trust teenage girls to like be repeat viewers of a movie to watch it over and over which i totally did actually which i still do (laughs) um and the kind of word of mouth way in which they would like recommend it to each other so yeah definitely the fact that the movies got made was definitely an economic move i would say hmm uh, but then anyway, going back to the article I talked about earlier on Bustle from Dana Getz, um where she's talking about sleepover movies, she says that the 2000s were basically just like this golden age. There were also like a lot of women filmmakers at this time, which she calls somewhat of a fluke. And she says, according to the Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film at San Diego State University, the number of women screenwriters was at a high point in 2000, at the meager tally of 14% among the top 250 films. By 2006, that number had dipped to 10%, while mo- women directors dropped from 11 to 7%. So yeah, it's just interesting that just at this time there just happened to be a lot of women filmmakers and, you know, we get movies like Mean Girls, written by Tina Fey, that we're just like not seeing as much of right now. Although she does say that as of 2019, the number of women screenwriters was at a historic 19%. It's
0: still so low, but… Yeah,
1: I know, isn't it depressing that that's the historic high? My point in all of this is that she's talking about the film industry, but Netflix is like a whole other thing that doesn't rely on advertisers, and I think that that has really like opened up the doors for shows like never have I ever
0: There was this article that I read that was also about like encouraging women to get behind the camera more and to produce more films. It was like in my very disappointing search for academic papers and journal articles about like the portrayal of teenage women in film. And it seems like it's just something that hasn't been studied or something that's been like dismissed as trivial because nobody really talks about it. But I was reading this paper that was arguing that more women need to be, be filmmakers. And this was back in the early 2000s because it helps challenge that view of like, it basically helps challenge the male gaze because women in film, like when produced by female filmmakers, theoretically wouldn't be subject to like that same objectification that you might see from like a male director
1: well that is relevant to um this other article i read on refinery 29 they have this whole column called writing critics wrongs by film critic ann cohen and she's basically like well like it says writing critics wrong so going back to these movies or movements that were like dismissed by critics because the vast majority of critics are white men Mm. and how they could kind of miss the point of some of these things like movies about teenage girls
0: that actually reminds me some of the only research I could find was on mean girls and it seemed like old white men writing about mean girls were like this is terrible like this is so unrealistic which I saw some of in bring it on as well where it's like this plot line would just never happen but I feel like that completely misses the satire of it like I feel like as someone Mm -hmm. who has lived through being a teenage girl you can see the truth in it but you can also see the hyperbole which is what makes it so identifiable because you can it like resonates with you it's like hints of truth that you experienced but just blown wildly out of proportion to like make a point or just to illustrate whatever it is that it's trying to illustrate but it seems like white male critics just like were so far beyond a point where they could relate to a teenage girl that they completely missed it and I guess if you are viewing a film like that at face value and comparing it like if you're looking at that film with like the same pair of eyes with which you watch Casablanca, then like maybe yes, (laughs) there is like a huge disconnect and you're going to miss the point. But I was actually surprised at how adamant these critics were that these films were garbage because I mean, even if they're just like a fun lighthearted film, they're not, I don't know. They're like, they're not trash. Like they're not really poorly produced. Like the scene cuts aren't so bad that it's unwatchable.
1: Yeah, Mean Girls is, like, one of the best movies of all time. I would have to agree. (laughs) And I I wonder if it's, like, a fear of, like, what are people going to think of me if I say this is good? I don't even know if it's a fear. I think it's just, like, an outright
0: dismissal because A.O. Scott is a dude. He was born in 1966, and he thought Bring It On wasn't completely terrible. Like, I mean, I know he was a little bit younger than that other critic writing for Chicago at the time of doing this review, but he seemed to find some merit in it. He's like a grown-ass man with a beard.
1: Yeah, Going back to that um, Ann Cohen column, the one titled Teenage Girls Loved These Movies, Critics Didn't, Who Was Right? She talks about that dismissal and she says... It's a dismaying and destabilizing feeling to realize that the things you consider vital parts of yourself were either misunderstood or disparaged, dismissed as trivial and unimportant by those considered the gatekeepers of cultural tastes. You start questioning your own feelings and opinions, wondering if perhaps they've been off this whole time. You even start wondering whether you matter at all. And yeah, I think that just saying this whole genre is garbage, like not even bothering to like, find the merits in each movie can have that effect of just, like, oh, the opinions and tastes of teenage girls, just nobody cares about them.
0: I think that's a lot of why I also just consciously tried to not like these movies when I was a teenage girl, because they were so dismissed that I didn't want to be dismissed in the same way for liking those kinds of things.
1: Yeah, that's, like, one of the many ways in which we have to, like, adapt ourselves and, like, our tastes and our opinions to just, like, not be dismissed in society, which is super depressing. That's really bad. Uh, and she goes on to say that calling for more diversity, um, Cohen goes on to say that calling for more diversity and criticism isn't saying men can't understand movies about women, but rather women and people of color should be included in that conversation. Mm. A- and she quotes this critic from the LA Times, Justin Chang, who says who is this movie for rules out the possibility of sympathetic imagination the ability to empathize with a perspective other than one's own as the chief impulse behind artistic depiction and appreciation we negate the possibility of sympathetic imagination when we assume that someone's particular affinity for a work of art will be dictated in advance by specifics of race gender and age it's not that those specifics aren't factors it's that some have a tendency to mistake factors for absolutes hmm. Which is really nicely said, and yeah, it's like, we shouldn't make this assumption that, oh, this movie is made for 15-year-old girls, so a 40-year-old guy is never going to get it. Like, A.O. Scott got it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He sure did.
1: So yeah, I think as I was kind of hinting at earlier, I think that streaming platforms have kind of gotten rid of that idea that, like, you know, because advertising was so important to movies and TV, it's like, oh, you have to have a target audience, and it has to be delineated by age, and gender and race. And um, I did some research on this in grad school and looking at like how Netflix create like by getting rid completely of advertisers, and you just pay your own subscription to watch these shows like, they don't care about your age or race or gender. It's just the content that you watch. And there's content there for you to find that is aligned with maybe more your interests than necessarily with, like, who you are demographically. Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, yeah, the Netflix algorithm is built to, like, serve content based on previous interaction and interest. So there's also, that's interesting. Yeah,
1: it's like the fact that I'm watching a ton of, you know, teenage girl movies and shows might They might make some deductions about that, about who I am, but they don't really care about that as much as serving me up more content that I'm going to like, so I'll spend more time on their platform. Right. So yeah, I think that that's something that has created space for a great show like Never Have I Ever to exist, and that show was created by Mindy Kaling and Lang Fisher, and it follows the life of Davey, who is Indian-American, and... I think I love it in a lot of the same ways that I love teenage things like Bring It On, but also, as we've talked about, some of the things that were problematic in the 2000s like, are being handled in a really different and like great way in this show. Definitely. I have to say I hated the first few episodes of the show. Really? Yes. Why did you hate them? Ooh,
0: they were just so cringeworthy, for lack of a better word. I was so embarrassed like for the characters. I couldn't relate to Davy at all because she was behaving so erratically and selfishly. I was just like, Mm -hmm. like I was just sitting there doing the thing where you like pull a blanket up to the bottom of your (laughs) eyes, but don't quite cover your eyes and just like squinted at the screen a lot. I also remember the first time I saw Paxton's character, I was like, holy shit, that guy's as old as me. And I looked it up and he was born two weeks after me. He is as old as me. And I was like, yep, there's like an almost 30 year old dude playing a high school character. Like that uh, checks out.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> Although I do like that they make fun of that in the show where like Davy's cousin Kamala becomes obsessed with watching Riverdale, yes. which is like the epitome of like a teenage soap opera where all the actors are 30. And I just remember her yelling like, I'm sorry, they're supposed to be teenagers and they're allowed to take showers together in their house. <laughs> like, Where are their parents? <laughs> and this is a murder mystery. Um, but those shows do create these like really unrealistic expectations about like what being a teenager is. And maybe being a teenager is a lot more of feeling super cringy and hiding under a blanket and having so many emotions and not understanding them.
0: I mean, I think that's definitely true. I, I also just was definitely not the type of teenage girl that would ever go up to someone or even actively express interest in them. That's not how oh, I was. About, I was not <laughs> about to put myself out there like that. So I guess that was the part that I found, like, like just when she is stalking Paxton after swim practice and then is like, we don't even have to date. Would you just, like, sleep with me? I was just like, I can't even fathom <laughs> <laughs>
1: going on right now I was totally that teenager definitely not the let's have sex part I was not ready for that but I definitely was a pursuer of boys
0: how did that work out I was always too terrified of rejection to even dabble I was like rejection is something that boys can deal with I'm not gonna deal with it
1: (laughs) I just thought I was too fucking cool man like I hated being pursued and I just always liked a guy who was like two years older than me and in a band and I don't know because I'm such a deep introvert I don't know how I went about that life, but I was just like, you know, be like the cool girl and it's like, eventually they're going to like me because I'm so cool.
0: (laughs) I feel like I also tried that, but then I never did anything with it. I was like, I'm going to hang out with guys and like do cool things and skateboard and also snowboard. And I also play guitar. And then I was just like, and then I'm just going to sit here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So to go back to what you were saying, though, about how the show handles things differently, that was... To me, that was like the starkest difference between the show and some of those early 2000s shows and movies was that there was like this respectful place opened up for discovering sexuality that reminded me in a lot of ways of sex education, but kind of in a more realistic way almost because sex education is like this crazy, as we've talked about, like utopian alternate reality where – Yeah in Europe, teenagers are just young adults and handle things accordingly, apparently. They're just smaller versions of real grown people. But there's this moment when one of Davy's best friends comes out, Fabiola, right? Yeah. And she's, like, so afraid and, like, so worried about how her mom is going to react, like, how people are going to perceive her, how her friends are going to react. And people were just, like, really excited and supportive for her. And it was just this really great thing to see because even her friends, like, as she is telling them that she is gay, they're saying, like, these wonderful supportive things and being protective of her in a way that you definitely wouldn't have seen and, like, bring it on.
1: For sure, yeah, and, like, the word gay is only ever used by Fabiola to define her own sexuality. Correct. Which is really nice. But yeah, I I really appreciated that, how they treated that storyline. And Just the fact that the show was so diverse, like, in Bring It On, there's one Asian girl in the crew, like, that's it, and obviously, like, there is the representation of the East Compton squad, who are predominantly Black and it seems, like, Hispanic, although they don't really introduce the characters that much, but they're kind of set up to be, like, in opposition with the white crew whereas like race is just something that's handled like genuine diversity in this show and I obviously a lot of that comes from Mindy Kaling being one of the creators of the show and basing a lot of it on her I mean not like the plot but like the experiences on her own life and yeah just knowing like she as a creator like had to grow up identifying with white girls and so The fact that she then has this opportunity to create something and put on the screen a girl who looks like her is really cool.
0: Yeah. And I I think that's an interesting point about race too, is like, there's, I mean, there are some funny moments in it, but there's like Paxton Hall Yoshida, like his friends don't even realize that he's half Japanese, um, because he seems like such a, I mean, I don't, they're not in the United States, are they?
1: Yeah, they're in San Diego or something. That's right. Or in um, LA, I don't
0: know. Yeah, I was, for some reason I was getting, like, I was like, am I confusing this with Big Little Lies somehow? And I think it's <laughs> just because they're all living in giant houses that don't reflect, like, the socioeconomic <laughs> diversity of this country.
1: Yeah, that's um, a good point.
0: But, yeah, it's it was just, like, interesting to me that, yeah, Paxton was like, I'm half Japanese. And his friend was like, oh, I didn't even realize that. And just, like the way that these different groups are all sort of integrated and race is kind of part of like an identity and like a point of pride. And it gets handled a little bit in one of the celebrations in the series, but people aren't like outcast or defined by their nationality or their race. They're It's just like part of who they are, which is pretty cool to see.
1: Yeah, that Ganesh Puja episode is so cool. And I watched a, a video of um, Mindy Kaling and Maitre Ramakrishnan, who plays Davy, like talking about like the significance of that episode and just like representing this event that is so big in the lives of Hindu Indians. But there are like a couple moments in that episode where like um, Davy's dressed in her half sari and she's like at Starbucks and a little girl asks her if she's Princess Jasmine and then somebody else asks her if it's Ramadan. So it's like These, like, ways in which people like stereotype Mm -hmm. these cultures that aren't even the same culture, they handled that, I think, really nicely with like showing what the misconceptions are and then showing like what the true event is, especially for an American girl who like has a hard time identifying with that culture and like being told that she's too Indian and that she's not Indian enough.
0: Yeah. But that also reminds me of I was actually kind of offended initially at the handling of both Davies therapist and her principal who are both black mm-hmm. I was like wow these are like really standard kind of like comic relief black female characters mm-hmm. who add an element of reality to this show but it's like very frustrating to me that they're portrayed in like a really two dimensional space but I actually realized that like a lot of characters in that film are, are foils like you definitely get deeper black characters with Fabiola and her mom but mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, like, this weird mix of, like, relatable characters and then, like, stereotypical characters.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. To that point, kind of, of, like, the development of the side characters, like, you definitely see... A lot more of that than, you know, you would in the early 2000s stuff. Like, I couldn't tell you a single thing about Torrance's family or, like, what her parents do. Mm -hmm. And it is nice to see that um, family relationship a lot more fleshed out in Never Have I Ever. Obviously, it's a series, not a movie, so they have more time to do that. Her mom was
0: definitely one of my favorite characters. I really liked her.
1: Yes, me too. And her cousin Kamala is great.
0: Kamala was good.
1: Yeah, in a lot of ways, she's kind of handling
0: some of the same parallel pressures as Davy and her friends where she is like being pressured into this arranged marriage and there are like certain expectations of her because she has moved out to the West to be a quote unquote career woman. So she's really just grappling with like trying to find herself and her own identity and like what's acceptable within the bounds of what other people expect of her.
1: Yeah, I love um her relationship with Davy because toward the beginning of the show, like Davy just hates her for being the perfect Indian girl that she doesn't feel like she is herself. And she even says to her, like, Oh, you're the daughter my mom wishes she had and when she finds out that Kamala has a secret boyfriend, she says, You're not perfect. You're bad like me and that's so important to Davy to like see to have flawed role models because it's like so hard to achieve this idea of perfection, which she is going after. She's like, wants to get into Princeton, you know, is competing to always be at the top of her class. And there's just like this idea of what the model teenage girl should be. And her seeing that you're allowed to also be flawed and make bad decisions is equally important. Mm-hmm. I thought it was actually interesting
0: in both this series and then Bring It On how some of the most outcast characters. Like how Davy and her friends are all re- referred to as the UN, not because of their nationalities, but because they're unfuckable. Mm-hmm. Um, it also kind of reminded me of Missy and Bring It On, who we didn't really talk about. But I feel like those like non-conforming characters who are just like a little bit different, or they go against the flow, sort of open up a space in the movie for the plotline to like develop in new and interesting ways. So in Bring It On. I feel like the plot really picks up when Missy shows Torrance that all of the moves from the squad have been stolen because Missy has like a different background. She's competed against some of these schools. I think when she was on the gymnastics team, she might've seen like some of the dance moves. So she like realizes that everything that the cheerleading squad has is basically like a lie and it's just ripped off from another school. And then with like Davy and her friends as well, they're so socially outcast and ostracized and like bullied to an extent that they just sort of can do things differently, like Davy can just go up to the captain of the swim team because she's like so desperate to be accepted and to have like this certain teenage experience that she really has nothing left to lose.
1: Yeah, I totally, like, saw myself as Missy, like, watching that movie as a teenager. Like, I appreciated that because, like, I wasn't, never saw myself as, like, the pretty girl in school or anything like that, so I totally appreciated those types of characters. And I did see a video with um, Mindy Kaling and Lang Fisher talking about the show and, like, how they wanted to see nerds who were interesting and were developed, because I feel like a lot of those, like, early 2000s shows, like, the nerds were, like, these really flat characters. But these nerds are super interesting and cool. Like, Fabiola is super into robotics, and she's just, like, such a cool character, and Eleanor is, like, you know, the president of the drama club, and has this whole, like, relationship with drama and her relationship with her mom that's, like, interesting and complex, and, like, they get to be something other than just, like, oh, the nerd's in the corner.
0: I can't go back and experience high school again now, as opposed to when I graduated, but it does kind of seem like there's been a shift in values from, like this like a business orientation or like this like extrovert centric idea of what it takes to succeed in the world like be captain of the football team or like the cheerleading squad and then like go to school and study something responsible and then go on and succeed in life because it just seems like careers aren't that clear cut anymore and I'm wondering if part of the way that this show is structured is also a reaction to that where people have come to realize like I mean I even remember applying to college as people saying like it's not really enough to just take all ap classes and have like volunteering hours you need to have something that makes you like distinct and special and remarkable so i feel like to an extent like as a result of the competitiveness of the workplace but also just like the way that jobs are shifting there actually is more value in diversifying opinions and like diversifying like the type of people who work for a company and bringing on people who like don't all think the same so I feel like it's partly kind of like a social movement, but it's also partly just the world is changing and people are realizing that for practical reasons, you need, like, more different kinds of people working together.
1: Yeah, that's a really good insight. It is interesting, though, that in in Never Have I Ever, there's no stereotypical mean girls. Like, you know, and Bring It On, you have Courtney and Whitney on the squad who are very much stereotypical mean girls. They try to push Torrance off of the captain spot and all these things. And really, Davy's kind of nemesis in the show is her academic competition, like the second or the other smartest kid in her class. And I just thought that was kind of nice and refreshing. Cause like, I mean, I didn't go to high school here. So I don't know, but I didn't really have that mean girls experience
0: I feel like it was there but it wasn't like as overt as in bring it on like it was a lot of like backhanded catty stuff like behind people's backs as opposed to like two people's faces but yeah that was interesting because it seemed like the other girls in never have I ever were either just neutral like they just were sort of dismissive and didn't really care or they were like mostly supportive of each other Whereas it seemed like the guys were the ones who were actually kind of like the meanest and cruelest. And that could just be because the plot was really centered around Davy's quest for a boyfriend. Um, So that could have been some like natural tension there just because she didn't interact with a lot of other like females. But I don't know. There were also a lot of lines about like feminism and like sticking together. And I think that that's something that you don't really see as much in Bring It On. Like in Bring It On, you'd see something along the lines of like girl power, and like, look at us girls, but it wasn't like that same solidarity and bonding together as you see in Never Have I Ever.
1: Yeah, there is like the gentle subplot of Torrance and Missy and you know the fact that they begin kind of at odds with each other but they become really good friends and towards the end of the movie Torrance does tell Missy like, I'm so glad you were here this year, like I couldn't have done it without you and it does kind of show that all the other girls on the squad, like, they might have been on the squad together, but they weren't really close friends. Mm -hmm. Um, But I agree, that's not, like, a central part of the plot, although it is nice to see, like, Torrance and Isis, like, coming together and understanding each other as, like, you know, we're captains of our squad and we're gonna do the right thing for our squad, and at least they have, like, some mutual understanding. That's true. All right, let's move on to some recommendations. Great.
0: I haven't actually been like watching a lot of content since last we spoke. I had mentioned Perry Mason, which I've since finished and it's wonderful and I still recommend it to everybody, but I started reading fun house, right? Not fun home. I'm just getting into it. It's fun home. Okay. A family tragicomic. The tension is building. I'm learning all about the historic restoration, but we haven't quite yet hit the central plot point. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I've really been enjoying that. I thought it was a novel, but it turns out it's filled with pictures. Yes. So that's pretty cool.
1: How about you? I feel like I've been watching a lot of documentary series more than anything. And one that I just so, so loved recently was Street Food Latin America Mm, on Netflix. Sounds amazing. So good. Like, every episode centers around, like, one city and just street food vendors and their stories and obviously the food but it actually turned out to be like a really there's just so many cool stories of predominantly women who became street food vendors to like support their families send their kids to school things like that and they're just like all the stories are just kind of linked by this like perseverance and like Creativity. So many of the women talk about how, like, when they started their cart or, you know, their kiosk, the competition, like, if they saw them doing well, like, the other street food vendors on that street would try to sabotage them. Wow. And, like, one lady had her stuff set on fire, oh and gosh. another woman had to, like, get in a fist fight with another lady. It's like, well, nobody messes with me now. <laughs> But yeah, it turned out to be a really good series. Like obviously we love food, so there's that, but also the stories. Like ended up being super interesting and I feel like a lot of food shows sometimes are about oh, this American person travels around the world and shows you this country through their own lens, but it's cool to hear instead from these cooks themselves. And I feel like it gives you like a different insight into their culture.
0: Yeah, it's really cool to kind of give them a voice. It reminds me a little bit about I think it was like somebody feed Phil
1: mm-hmm. or
0: it might've been I love street. That show. <laughs> or, oh shoot. Gosh, it might've been street eats, but there was like an episode on Bangkok. I don't know why I can't remember what show this was, but I just remember that there was like this, there was like this interview with the woman who makes like the crab omelets and she yeah. was telling her story and how she like started off as a, like just a street vendor, but her food was so good that she like was able to eventually open up a storefront. And I remember that story just being like, really beautiful and cool and I, I think they did a decent job giving her a voice and letting her tell her own story but it is cool to hear that there's a show out there where they're maybe giving some of those chefs like more of a voice
1: well thank you for potting with me thank you for potting with me it
0: was fun to talk about uh teenage girl films and shows yes.
1: thank you guys for listening and go to social media and tell us your favorite movie when you were a teenager yes definitely Our instagram <laughs> definitely submit your favorites Follow us on Instagram at MadelineLooksBack. Subscribe to our newsletter. You can go to our website, MadelineLooksBack.com. We'll see you next time. This podcast is produced and edited by its hosts. The music is Lost Souls by Portrayal. You can find a list of all the articles and theorists we cited today in the show notes.